You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Activism and nation-state involvement in the cyber phases of the war in the Middle East and the use of Telegram... Russian groups squabble online. Healthcare cybersecurity and its implications for patient care. The looting of FTX on the day of its bankruptcy. Joe Kerrigan shares research from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Our guest is Mike Walters from Action One, marking the 20th anniversary of Patch Tuesday. And CISA releases two new resources against ransomware. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel Briefing for Friday, October 13th, 2023. The Wall Street Journal reports increased cyber attacks as Israeli forces strike into Gaza in retaliation for attacks by Hamas over the weekend. Most of the offensive cyber action the journal describes is directed against Israel, and most of it remains the nuisance-level DDoS activity that typically characterizes hacktivism. Defacements, another hacktivist staple, have also been observed. Security firm Checkpoint told CNBC that two smart billboards used for video advertising in Tel Aviv were briefly hijacked Thursday. The attackers managed to switch the commercials into anti-Israeli pro-Hamas footage. CNBC quotes Checkpoint's Gil Messing is saying. The substituted video showed the Palestinian flag, a burning Israeli flag, and images of the fighting. The incident was short-lived. The Wall Street Journal also describes threats of more significant cyber attacks. For the most part, these threats have been simply that— Claims intended to intimidate and inspire fear, but there has been an increase in attempts against infrastructure. So far, these have been parried, but the threat remains a concern to Israel, particularly as threat actors more capable than the ordinary hacktivists join the action. Security firm Sepio told the journal that they've seen a rise in activity from Iran and Syria, as well as from Russian hacktivist auxiliaries, including Kilnet. Flashpoint researchers conclude that Telegram has become a principal communication channel for Hamas and groups that align themselves with that organization. Flashpoint says, 
Telegram, with its 700 million-plus strong user base, has evolved into a pivotal communication hub for Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Its robust privacy and encryption protocols safeguard communications while also providing a covert operational space for militant groups and cyber criminals. Researchers at Radware outline the course the cyber phases of the war have taken. Radware has been looking at hacktivist claims of DDoS on Telegram, where claimed attacks spiked on Saturday and have remained at elevated levels since then. Target selection, as reported by the hacktivists themselves, concentrated on Israeli government sites, then on news and media, travel, financial services, education, and finally, healthcare. Radware also observed a number of DDoS attacks. They ranged in duration from minutes to hours, in some cases up to 24 hours. Russian hacktivist auxiliaries have not been unanimous on the war in the Middle East. Kilnet has been outspoken against Israel during the current fighting Hamas initiated last weekend, as has Anonymous Sudan. The cyber army of Russia disagrees sharply, not because it wishes to engage on behalf of Israel, but because the cyber army sees war in the Middle East as a distraction from Russia's main concern, the war in Ukraine. Seibel's Cyber Express reports that the cyber army of Russia is seeking to organize sentiment against Kilnet under the hashtag StopKilnet. Menacing texts and other messages represent a low-grade, targeted, and unpleasant form of influence operations. Israelis have been receiving threatening texts and WhatsApp messages, apparently from Hamas sympathizers in Yemen and Afghanistan. Bloomberg reports that Israeli partners and Jewish parents in other countries are having their children delete social media apps, especially Instagram and TikTok, to avoid exposure to violent images. Much of this is preventative, a precaution rather than a reaction, but Hamas has distributed images of executions and hostage-taking. The European Union is pursuing its investigation into X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. According to the Financial Times, an EU commissioner wrote X, We have, from qualified sources, reports about potentially illegal content circulating on your service, despite flags from relevant authorities. X's proprietor, Elon Musk, replied, Our policy is that everything is open source and transparent, an approach that I know the EU supports. Please list the violations you allude to on X so that the public can see them. After some other dismissals and protests of misunderstanding, X announced, according to Reuters, that it's removed hundreds of Hamas-affiliated accounts and taken action to remove or label tens of thousands of pieces of content. The EU is looking into the actions X took to moderate its content as it evaluates its next steps in the case. A Panaman Institute survey commissioned by Proofpoint looked at the consequences of cyber attacks against healthcare organizations. These attacks are both a business risk and a threat to patient care and patient privacy. The study found that 88% of healthcare organizations sustained an average of 40 cyber attacks over the past 12 months, with the average total cost of successful attacks reaching $4.5 million. Losses included all direct cash outlays, 
direct labor expenditures, indirect labor costs, overhead costs, and lost business opportunities. The most expensive consequence of these attacks was disruption to normal healthcare operations because of system availability, causing an average of $1.3 million in losses. Elliptic has published an analysis of the $477 million theft of cryptocurrency from FTX in November 2022, noting that of the stolen assets that can be traced through chip mixer, significant amounts are combined with funds from Russia-linked criminal groups, including ransomware gangs and darknet markets, before being sent to exchanges. The researchers add, whoever was behind the hack the stolen assets continued to be moved and laundered through the blockchain. Various cross-asset and cross-chain laundering techniques have been used to avoid seizures of these assets and to attempt to conceal the money trail. And finally, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has released two resources for identifying vulnerabilities and misconfigurations exploited by ransomware. The first, a Known to be used in ransomware campaigns column in the Known Exploited Vulnerabilities Catalog, which identifies KEVs associated with ransomware campaigns. The second resource is titled Misconfigurations and Weaknesses Known to be Used in Ransomware Campaigns. It's on the StopRansomware.gov website, which identifies misconfigurations and weaknesses associated with ransomware campaigns. The table features a column that identifies the cyber performance goal action for each misconfiguration or weakness. Take a look. The advice is actionable and relevant. Coming up after the break, Joe Kerrigan shares research from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Our guest is Mike Walters from Action One marking the 20th anniversary of Patch Tuesday. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. 
This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. This past Tuesday was this month's Patch Tuesday, a monthly event that's been around long enough now that its cadence is something folks in InfoSec hardly think twice about. But how did Patch Tuesday start, and why did it catch on? Mike Walters is VP of Vulnerability and Threat Research and co-founder of security firm Action One, and I spoke with him about the legacy of Patch Tuesday. Microsoft introduced it back in October of 2003, so it's been... Uh... Almost 20 years, uh, which uh, also coincides with the uh, 20th year anniversary of Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And uh, prior to uh, 2003, the approach to deploying security updates has uh, been pretty much on an ad hoc basis, uh, you know, here and there, different vendors releasing updates. And then in October 2003, Microsoft introduced this concept of Patch Tuesday, which is a monthly security patch release cycle, which uh, uh, set the cadence uh, and made scheduling of security updates more predictable. On top of that, they added other information sources. So it's uh, initially was security bulletin system, and then they in 2017 they replaced it with the security update guide which is a comprehensive uh, vulnerability information source. And then on top of security updates, they just use the same channels to make uh, non-security updates, feature updates available along with uh, security updates. But but still, the main focus remains on setting the cadence for ensuring that security updates reach all of the systems that need those. There's been some mishaps along the way, of course. There's uh, pretty much early on, so there's been some uh, very uh, well-known incidents like when back in Windows XP Service Pack 2 2004, so about a year after since the introduction. So that caused major compatibility issues with uh, uh, some third-party applications and hardware. And then Windows Vista 2007. Yeah, there's there's been issues which Microsoft took to heart. So they worked with the customers. They understood the concerns. Over time, they've been trying to prove the quality. There's still issues that remain, right? There's still, you know, as, as recent as... Uh, Actually, August, August of this year, so it's, uh, the cumulative update had issues with certain types of hardware causing blue screens of death, and you know that's that's a major thing because this is the it's all about trust and reliability. Because if you don't deliver reliable updates on a consistent basis, then people lose trust and they stop installing those updates, and that's not what you want to have. It's all over the news. There's security breaches. There's well, some well-known attacks like WannaCry back in 2017 that it showed the importance of timely patching. Because if you don't do this, then uh, you, your attack surface is, you know, you're, you're exposed. You're, you're basically, you have open doors for anyone to come in and uh, hack your systems. And other organizations have sort of uh, adopted this cadence as well, right? It's not just Microsoft anymore. Yeah, Adobe, Oracle, uh, a few other vendors, yeah, they fit in the same cycle. And some of them even integrated with uh, Microsoft update systems to provide the same update 
channel essentially and simplify uh, lives of IT professionals. Not, unfortunately, not everyone does it, which makes um, patching of different applications uh, really challenging, right? Because if you run a big stack of applications and you need to patch those, first of all, there, there's no consistency in the release cycles. Patch Tuesday is not every vendor's approach. And uh, also the technology, how, how do you deploy those updates regularly and consistently that that's highly dependent on the vendor technology, unfortunately. But, you know, there's been some industry developments that uh, attempts to streamline that and make it more standardized. But so far, it's, we have yet to see the actual results of that. Have we seen any examples of any of the adversaries taking advantage of this cadence of you know, know, knowing that things are going to happen on this sort of schedule? Unfortunately, yes. Quite recent uh, term somebody coined uh, called Exploit Wednesday, which is a Wednesday that follows Patch Tuesday. Patch Tuesday, second Tuesday of the month, 10 a.m., Microsoft publishes the, all the CVs that they have patched in, in the cumulative update that's released on that day. And all the threat actors mostly know that the majority of organizations don't deploy those updates right away. And there's a testing requirement. So they uh, take advantage of that. And as soon as the following day, we hear about massive exploitation attempts, it becomes extremely easy because there's a vulnerability as well documented. They can, uh, sometimes there's proofs of concept. Sometimes there's existing hacker tool sets that can be used to, to make on a, those exploits, you know, readily available exploits, basically. But there's been incidents taken advantage of that. But it's best to document them, uh, make patches available, and then there's Probably better ways to do like mitigation controls, such as uh, in the future, I suppose there's going to be technologies uh, that uh, isolate vulnerabilities before they're patched. Maybe there are ways to uh, tackle this. But yeah, that, to answer your question, so unfortunately it has its uh, negative uh, side effects as public vulnerability source, which is available to everyone, not, not just to the good people, but to bad people as well. That's Mike Walters from Action One. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hey there, Joe. Hi, Dave. You have some interesting information to share with us that came out of uh, your place of employment, the Johns Hopkins University. What's going on here, Joe? So we have finished up conducting a cybersecurity survey of Maryland residents. This was a survey commissioned by the Maryland Cybersecurity Council. We received some funding from the National Cryptologic Foundation, and we provided some funding ourselves. Uh, And this was a pilot study. That mm. we did to to kind of get a gauge, put our put our finger on the pulse of Maryland cybersecurity awareness, uh, to see really how we would focus another research study to get a better look at what the uh, cybersecurity posture of Maryland looks like. So this is sort of a preliminary study. To preliminary better, study, right? To, to better focus the next study that you will do. Exactly. Right. So what are some of the interesting uh, bits of information you all gathered here? So. Uh, one of the things I want to talk about is we asked some basic knowledge questions, uh, hmm. and we uh, we said, what is social engineering and information security context? 
uh, 25% of people got that right out hmm. of a possible four answers with an I don't know. So I guess five answers. Yeah. 25% of people got that right. That's pretty close to a random guess. Right. So it seems to me that uh, people don't really know what the term social engineering uh, means, which indicates that, well, once again, Joe was right. And this is a terrible term. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I've said this many times. I don't like the term social engineering. First time I heard it, I thought of something completely different than what it, what it is. But in the security industry, we all call it social engineering. By contrast, 61% of people know what phishing is, hmm. which actually in our study, uh, we found pretty similar results to the most recent Proofpoint State of the Fish report where they found 58% of people were able to correctly identify that term. Okay. Uh, so we're pretty close there. 70% of people said they knew what multi-factor authentication was. Hmm. Uh, and when you break that down further, we found that 42% of people say they use some form of multi-factor authentication on their more important accounts. Hmm. And then other people use it on most accounts, like 25% of people say they use it on most accounts. And then only 23% say they use it everywhere it's offered. I, uh, you know, the fact that people are using it, that's, that's good. It's a large percentage of people who are using it at some level. Yeah. I don't use it on all my accounts. I don't recommend that everybody use it on all their accounts. All their very important accounts, I say yes. Yeah. Uh, only 7.5% of people, though, are using hardware tokens, which that's we interesting. talk about frequently. Right. Um, you know, there's, a, there's some shocking information about passwords. 20% of people use the same password for most of their accounts. Wow. Um, and uh, only 26% said they use long, complex passwords. And that kind of lines up with the percentage of people that use a password manager at 28%. Hmm. So uh, that doesn't surprise me that those two numbers are very close because if you use a password manager, it'll generate the complex passwords for you. Right, right. Um, and it removes the burden of having to remember them. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we also asked some questions about victimization, and we found that, uh, you know, victims of, of crimes and scams, 20% of people said they had been a victim of ransomware. Hmm. Uh, in the follow-on study, I want to do a more in-depth probe of that. Where were you a victim of ransomware? Is that at your workplace or is it at home? When we asked people, this was kind of shocking. We asked uh, the respondents, has your information been breached to your knowledge? 45% uh, said Yes. The other 55% said no or they didn't know. 17% said they didn't know. 38% said no. Huh. I'm sure everyone who listens to this podcast knows that just about everybody has had their data breached at some point in time. Right. I, I just got a couple of letters last week about another data breach that contained my personal information. Right. So I'm, I'm shocked that, that less than half the people in, in Maryland are aware of this as an issue, hmm. uh, or at least it would seem that way. Wow. 23% uh, of people said they were victims of a scam, online scam, where they had lost some kind of money, some amount of money. Uh, and we even had two, we asked them how much they had lost. We had two respondents who said they had lost $100,000. Wow. And nine people who said they had lost in the tens of thousands of dollars. Um, now, I don't know if the, uh, if the two that said they lost $100,000 are are accurate or they're just like outliers or, I mean, they're definitely outliers, but are they accurate outliers? Hmm. Uh, I, I am not shocked by the, by the $100,000 number on right. these things. We've, we've had all kinds of stories. We had a story on hacking humans coming out that uh, you covered somebody who lost $600,000 on an online scam. Right, right. Uh, so $100,000 is not out of the realm of possibility for these things. Yeah. The average loss was three hundred or $3,000. Uh, that's a mean, just a simple mean. 
Uh, and even if you take out the two $100,000 losses, the, the mean is still around $1,500 hmm. a person Okay. Uh, pr- uh, who suffered a loss, which if you do the extrapolation out to the full population, a very naive extrapolation, uh, albeit, uh, you wind up with a total loss of about $2.1 million or billion dollars, billion with a B. Wow. Uh, which is a lot of money out of Maryland, just out of Maryland alone. Yeah. So next we want to... Um, we want to get some funding. We're going to try to get some funding for a uh, a broader survey that is more scientific. For this one, used MTurk, you know, which was is is fine for running a, a survey like this. But I really want to get a um, and Dr. DeBurr and I want to get a, a, a really good sample and a really good distribution. We're probably going to engage with somebody that has uh, has the infrastructure to do this. Mm. I mean. We're interested in this, but at, in the Information Security Institute and in computer science, we really don't have the infrastructure for this. Right. Um, maybe we'll reach over to someone in our social sciences departments to find out. Oh, there you go. Um, but ultimately, we would like this to be the result or the result of these these surveys to be policy uh, around protecting the end user and the consumer, the average person in Maryland. Huh. Are you looking to do an awareness campaign or uh, an awareness campaign would be good. An education campaign, changing yeah. the education, uh, the curriculum in the, uh, in, in schools would right. be awesome. Uh, yeah. understanding that, uh, you know, just a basic, even ads, just running something from a public service announcement that says Microsoft doesn't give you their phone number in pop-up ads. Right. Right. You know, they just don't do right. it. Don't, yeah. Don't well, call there's that saying, you know, you, you don't know where you're going if you don't know where you are, right? right. So by establishing kind of ground truth through a, a, a survey like this, this sort of mechanism, yep. then you know where we got to go. How far away are we from the ideal? Yep. Yeah. And then we can also take follow-on surveys again to see if these uh, have any results, see if these campaigns have any results. Yeah. All right. Interesting stuff. Joe Kerrigan, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Be sure to check out this weekend's edition of Research Saturday and my conversation with Amit Malik from Uptix. We're discussing their research, Unwanted Guests, Mitigating Remote Access Trojan Infection Risk. That's Research Saturday. Do check it out. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. 
We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.